Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It was one of the strangest cases in Canadian history. A squashed piece of fruit and a tiny pinpoint reflection in a picture was the only evidence. But was it enough to catch a killer? On June 19, 1989, there was a thunderstorm in Collingwood, Ontario. But the rain didn't stop 33-year-old Debbie Timlock from venturing out that night. She was a pretty vivacious woman that loved to ski, and I had a sailboat in the harbor. She liked to sail, and um, she liked people. Debbie, a single mother, left her six-year-old daughter, Lacey, at her parents' home for the night. Debbie and a few of her friends went to a local restaurant where they visited with each other, and it was later in the evening when Debbie and her friends said goodbye to each other in the parking lot. Her friends said Debbie left alone and presumably went straight home. At 3.25 in the morning, however, she phoned police to report she had been attacked. She indicated she had been assaulted. I don't believe she was in total understanding of what had occurred. She was struggling to stay conscious. But by the time police arrived, it was too late. When I entered through the door of the apartment, I could see that there was an unclothed female body laying on her back next to the couch. Beside her left arm, which was outstretched, was the handset of a telephone. There was a great deal of blood on the floor. It was like something like this couldn't happen, you know? It's a small town, and, and why, you know? Investigators followed the trail of blood through the hallway and found a pair of metal frame eyeglasses and a woman's shoe, both covered in blood. Upon entering uh, Debbie Timlock's bedroom, we noticed... Uh, Blood on the waterbed, blood on different uh, articles of clothing and sheets, as well as a comforter that were either on the bed or on the floor. There was also blood stains and some blood spatter on a headboard of the bed. Investigators also found evidence of activity in the kitchen. The kitchen was disheveled. It appeared the entry was through the kitchen window, which was a ground-level apartment. There had been some disturbing of dishes and, and that type of thing that had been in the kitchen sink. Outside the kitchen window was an area partially hidden behind some greenery. On the ground, investigators noticed a tomato. Debbie Timlock had a tomato on her windowsill ripening, and the tomato had uh, likely been dragged out onto the ground when the suspect had pulled the blinds out of the window. When we noticed the tomato, it was quite obvious that there was a partial footwear impression on the tomato itself. They photographed the tomato, then put it in Debbie's refrigerator to preserve it. 
Police found no foreign fingerprints in the apartment, and there were no valuables missing. So investigators had to ask, who would have wanted Debbie dead? That question produced a few troubling answers. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. At Debbie Timlock's autopsy, the medical examiner found she had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. She died of a stab wound to the heart. He also found that uh, uh, there was a stab wound to the back which penetrated her spinal cord. The pathologist concluded that Debbie was paralyzed from the waist down when she crawled to the telephone to call police. I believe when Debbie is told by the ambulance, help is on the way, she responds, thank you, and I believe at that point she died. In a search for Debbie's killer, investigators found a possible lead. Four years earlier, Debbie lived with a man named Ron Osborne, who had been involved in a drug smuggling ring. In 1985, 10 persons were investigated for attempting to smuggle drugs from the United States into Canada. Authorities had evidence that Osborne transported illegal drugs in a boat from Jamaica to Florida. At Osborne's trial, Debbie reluctantly testified against him. Debbie testified that Ron Osborne had told her that he had been on a boat for a two-month period. This boat is the one that was subsequently found to have storage compartments where the drugs had been stored. Osborne was in prison at the time of Debbie's murder. But investigators checked to see whether any of the other defendants might have killed her. Transcripts of the drug smuggling case were reviewed along with interviews of the investigating officers to determine um, where all the players actually were and how the entire investigation unfolded. Detectives concluded there was no connection to Debbie's murder. As a matter of routine, police also interviewed Debbie's ex-husband. The couple had been divorced for four years and shared custody of six-year-old Lacey. It was a amiable divorce both parties had gone in different directions, and the ex-husband of Debbie was alibied up. He was at home that night. So investigators focused on the evidence left at the scene, the pair of eyeglasses and the tomato with the foot impression. We knew right away that we had a pattern in the tomato, and we knew right away that it was a herringbone pattern. When the film was developed and analyzed, the flash in the photo created distinct shadows. We could see that along with the herringbone pattern was a second pattern or more detail than we had first been able to see, which was an S shape that came through the herringbone pattern. 
Next, investigators analyzed the eyeglasses. They found Debbie's blood on the glasses, which told a story. Both of the arms were folded, which to us, we, we believe, had fallen out of someone's pocket. Debbie had dragged herself to the phone from the bedroom and had actually dragged herself over those glasses. Since Debbie didn't wear glasses, investigators assumed they belonged to the killer. The pair was inexpensive, and the lenses didn't fit properly in the frame. The lens itself didn't exactly match the contour of the metal piece at the top, so creating a sort of a gap in the appearance of the lenses. It was clear they'd been worn for some time. And there was a size discrepancy between the two lenses. It was as if a portion of the lens had been ground off so that they just weren't the same shape, which is, is highly unusual. Then, investigators got an important lead. They learned that Debbie's former next-door neighbor was 23-year-old James Brown, a one-time Olympic hopeful. Brown had had some success in the sport of wrestling and had actually been to Japan where he'd hoped to further that and maybe have a shot at an Olympic um, spot on the team. Debbie told friends that Brown had made advances towards her. He did have a criminal record. He had been convicted of a number of offenses in the past, uh, mainly for assaults, thefts, and break-and-enters. That is why Brown came on the radar screen quite rapidly. He had done some time in jail, but never more than three months. When questioned, Brown denied any involvement in Debbie's murder and said he was out of town on the night of the crime. He indicated that he had been at a hotel where he was assaulted by persons unknown, and as a result of that, he went to the ground and he woke up on the side of the road several miles away. Brown had scratches on his face, which he said came from the assault. Given his size, detectives were skeptical of his story. He was a man, some six foot three in height, large structure, about 350 some pounds, wide shoulders, extremely wide fists. And detectives noticed something else. In his mugshots from a previous arrest, Brown was wearing glasses. The prime suspect in Debbie Timlock's murder was her former next-door neighbor, a convicted criminal, Jim Brown. During questioning... He wasn't wearing glasses, although he admitted owning a pair for reading, but claimed he lost them. This gave detectives an opportunity to tie Brown to the glasses found at the murder site. They removed Debbie's blood from the glasses and had an officer pose as a nurse and offer them to Brown. Let us know whether you're yours or not or what you do. Or... No, they're not. Jim smelled a rat. He looked at the glasses and said they were not his. It doesn't mean they're not his. It just means that we haven't got that connectivity yet. 
Police searched Brown's apartment and his car. We found a pair of blue canvas running shoes on the floor of the rear right passenger side of the vehicle. We believe they were manufactured in Czechoslovakia and were actually purchased by the Ontario government and were provided to inmates in the, the provincial system who were doing time. They also appeared to have the same distinctive tread pattern as the print on the tomato outside Debbie's window. There was a specific part of a design, which I'll refer to here as either an S-shape or a stylized 7, that became very apparent in the photograph. That really piqued my interest. But forensic investigator Jerry Webb had a problem. He needed to know if the weight of a 350-pound man created a different kind of shoe impression on a tomato than one you'd get by copying the shoe impression on paper or a transparency. So Webb designed an experiment. I had a person that wore size 13 shoes, uh, put on a bomb suit, and I added weights to the bomb suit in trying to increase the weight of this person to be more close to the weight of the suspect, in this case, Jim Brown. Webb sprayed water on tomatoes to simulate the rainstorm on the night of the murder. Then, had his 350-pound model step on each one wearing the suspect's shoes. Webb discovered that the test impression on the tomato was virtually the same as the one taken directly from the shoe and the photo taken at the crime scene. I was able to take those two overlays and put them over top of a photograph of the tomato itself and be able to uh, illustrate that, in fact, that the pattern matched up on the tomato impression. Although the size of Brown's shoe and the tread pattern was the same as the shoe impression left at the crime scene, there was no way to tell if this was the actual shoe. The impression on the tomato could have been made by the left shoe of Jim Brown, or it could have been made by another left shoe that had the same specific design and size. Since the shoes were prison-issued, they were unusual, although not uncommon. I feel that we need much more evidence to convict the person responsible for Debbie Timlock's senseless murder. So they turned to the eyeglasses found at the crime scene. Dr. Graham Strong, a professor of optometry at Waterloo University, was asked to determine whether the crime scene glasses were the same as those worn by Jim Brown in a police mugshot taken several years earlier. The problem that we had with the mugshots is that they really weren't a frontal mugshot. He was angled relative to the plane of the film. To solve the problem, Dr. Strong mounted the glasses on a styrofoam head and tried to approximate the angle in the mugshots. We didn't get it quite right. It was compelling, but it didn't rise to a level that was significant in our mind. Then, Dr. Strong enlarged the mugshot photographs and noticed something important. Tiny white dots, reflections from the photographer's flash in Brown's corneas. 
you actually use the reflection from the front surface of the eye to make a very standard measurement when you make a pair of glasses, namely the distance between the two eyes, so that what you do is you measure the difference between the, the reflection from the right eye to the left eye, and that's the interpupillary distance. From medical records, Dr. Strong knew that the distance between Brown's pupils was 72 millimeters. So now he had a scale by which he could measure the exact size of the frames and the lenses for comparison to the glasses from the crime scene. We're getting 20-odd identical measurements and observations related to the glasses. So there's a bit of a eureka moment when that happens. Bottom line was the glasses in evidence belonged to the accused and in fact were the ones that were worn in both of the mug shots that we analyzed. We believe we have Brown's glasses covered with blood in Debbie's apartment. But if that were true, why were the frames in the mug shots gold and the frames analyzed by the expert Brown? Thousands of hours of police and forensic investigation, prosecutors now knew what happened in Debbie Timlock's apartment on the night she was murdered. It was a very warm night, and the evidence shows that when Debbie returned from an evening with friends, she opened the kitchen window to help cool her apartment. Then she went to sleep. It was a ground floor apartment. The kitchen window was low. The motive was unclear, but the evidence shows James Brown entered Debbie's apartment and knocked the tomato off the windowsill, then stepped on it, leaving the impression of his prison shoes. Brown attacked Debbie in the bedroom, assaulted her, stabbed her twice with a knife, and left her for dead. On his way out, he dropped his glasses in the hallway. Debbie, most likely paralyzed from the waist down from the stab wound, crawled over those glasses on her way to call police. She died before she could identify her attacker. But her blood on Brown's glasses did it for her. I believe Debbie died on the telephone knowing she had done her job. I recall the day that Dr. Strong came to our office in Barrie like it was yesterday. It was a piece of evidence that was individual, and it truly was a high-five Yahoo moment. The final hurdle for prosecutors was to explain why Jim Brown's glasses were gold in the mug shots, but dark brown when shown to the jury. A decision had been made by the investigators to deliver Jim Brown's glasses to him at the jail. Prior to doing that, they wanted them cleaned of the blood that was on them. And in that process of cleaning the blood, part of the laminate from the temples of the glasses was rubbed off. In January of 1992, two and a half years after Debbie Timlock was killed, James Brown went on trial for murder. The trial lasted two and a half weeks, 
and relied on the shoe print left on a tomato and mathematical calculations from the reflection of a flashbulb. The jury deliberated for six hours and came back with a finding of first-degree murder. In Canada, a first-degree murder conviction carries an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. This case ranks among the most unusual in forensic history. I've been policing now for 28 years and 20 years in the forensic business. I've never before or never again had an impression in a tomato. It was amazing how Dr. Strong, based on a grainy mugshot of not great quality, was able to determine all the nuances of these glasses and able to mathematically determine the chances of being another pair like that in this world. When I first entered into the forensics field, I attended coroner's court in Toronto. And there is a sign that is on their wall that says that we speak for the dead. I've made that my motto over the last 20 years, recognizing that that crime scene is now the voice for the dead. (laughs) 